3: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Special counsel Jack Smith may ask his stolen documents grand jury to vote to indict Trump as early as this week. Justice Department officials may meet with some of Trump's attorneys as early as this week. And there is even the plausible inference that these two stories put together suggest the DOJ could make at least a token offer of a plea deal to Trump. There's a lot of ifs here and a lot of reported and some of the reports conflict with other reports so wildly that there is literally no way that all of what's out there can all happen. And I have been debating, skipping all of this and getting right to the startling news that Chris Licht of CNN is now so desperate to get not a Trump town hall, but an entire Republican presidential debate on his dying network that he has offered to formally partner with a right wing media outlet, and even have one of its people elevated to co-moderator of that debate with a CNN anchor on CNN. But then again, these podcasts can be infinitely long. So let me review where the Trump thing stands, because one thing seems certain we're close. I don't know what the hell we're close to, but we're close. Okay, so it's NBC News that is reporting the grand jury is going back into session after a month off this week with NBC's correspondence going further on air, implying it could be to vote on indictments. It could be a lot of things. But CBS News is reporting that the special counsel's decision on whether or not to try to charge Trump and if so, for what might happen this month while CBS also reports the possible Trump lawyers DOJ meeting this week. And that plea deal idea? That is our friend John Dean looking at the CBS report and looking at the latest superb work from the website Just Security and writing, every high-level official who violates national security laws appears to be offered a deal that includes losing security clearance. Will special counsel Smith offer Trump a deal? John points the rest of us to the model prosecution memo on the stolen Trump documents, which is heavy lifting unless you're a lawyer, but which parallels the exact kind of internal exercise DOJ would produce before indictment decisions were made. And 88 pages into the thing, there is what amounts to the entire history of, of when the DOJ has decided to prosecute for violations of mishandling of government documents, including violations of the Espionage Act, and when it hasn't, and the pattern becomes almost instantaneously clear. If you are Kendra Kingsbury or James Hitzelberger or Harold Martin III, and you take classified documents home and they catch you, they indict you and they put you on trial. And if you're smart, you plead guilty as soon as possible. But if you're former National Security Advisor Sandy Berger and you go into the National Archives and you purloin three copies of one classified document and you stuff them into your socks and you take them and you destroy them, or you're former Director of Central Intelligence John Deutsch and you were storing classified info on your home computer, or if you were General David Petraeus and you kept your black books with all the war strategy and the NSC discussions and the identities of the covert officers in them so that your girlfriend could use them to write her biography of you, guess what? The Department of Justice offers you a deal on lesser charges and the forfeiture of your security clearance. John Dean points out, and the just security model memo repeats it again and again, that the DOJ prosecution decisions depend to an amazing degree on how they have prosecuted similar cases or just similar parts of dissimilar cases before. The Justice Department seems at times more obsessed with precedent than does the Supreme Court. Well, if that's the case, it would seem almost a given that if Jack Smith were on the verge of indicting Trump... They would offer Trump a deal. They would have to talk to Trump's lawyers. But as John also notes, if you demanded that Trump forfeits national security clearance, how would that work? How could he run for president having agreed never to look at classified documents again in his life? Well, I can handle that one. He would promise, he would run, and if elected, he would pardon himself. Or maybe he wouldn't even have to go that far because, of course, the Department of Justice that would have to prosecute him for looking at national security documents, violating the plea deal he himself made months earlier would be run by people he had just appointed to run it. Before we drop this and move on to this is CNN and also Breitbart, let me just review the 11 days in this story and lead to that bigger conclusion I mentioned. It started then 11 days ago with the Washington Post report that Trump kept classified documents in his office in Florida and showed them to people who did not have the right to see them. Then last Tuesday, it was the Post reporting that the other guy who moved the boxes of classified documents for Trump and was caught on security video doing so just happened to ask the Mar-a-Lago IT guy how soon before the security system automatically deleted the old videos. And it was The Guardian reporting the same day that Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran's notes had shown he was essentially prevented from searching for documents anywhere but in the storage room when most of the documents were actually in the office. And it was last Wednesday that CNN reported about the smoking gun, that there is an audio recording made for Mark Meadows Ghostwriters in which Trump tells people who shouldn't even know that it exists that there is a four page U.S. military plan for an attack on Iran. And on the tape, it sounds like he is reading from it and rustling it. And then there was the follow-up that there are many such Trump tapes, and Jack Smith has all of them. And Friday, there was the New York Times follow-up that the DOJ subpoenaed it, but his lawyers could not find that Iran war document. And Saturday, it was, there aren't just Evan Corcoran notes. There are Evan Corcoran Dear Diary iPhone memos. And yes, maybe the grand jury meets this week to vote on indicting him, and maybe it does not, and maybe the DOJ will meet with his lawyers this week, and maybe it won't, and maybe there's a plea offer in the works, and maybe there isn't, but damn, does it sound like something large is about to go down. Now to CNN's Chris Licht, reportedly being willing to bribe the Republican Party by actually letting some figure from an ultra right wing outlet co-moderate a Republican presidential primary debate on CNN, establishing an actual CNN working partnership with. Who are we talking about here? Breitbart? Newsmax? The Daily Stormer? Ben Shapiro? Christina Bob? Steve Bannon? Lara Trump? What did American television news organizations learn from the last eight years of Trump? Nothing, not a damn thing. What did CNN learn from the Trump town hall? Nothing, not a damn thing. What did Chris Licht learn from his vivisection by magazine in the Atlantic? Nothing, not a damn thing. It slipped by because of so much other news about two of the principal players, but CNN and NBC are both reportedly prostituting themselves to try to get the rights to host a Republican presidential primary debate or debates. At least Chris Licht's argument for this is not, look how well the Trump town hall worked, or didn't I come off well in that piece in the Atlantic this week? Licht has suggested to the Republican National Committee that the debate could run on CNN, Plus, other networks owned by Warner Bros. Discovery and their digital channels and may be streaming. But then comes the evil piece de resistance. Quoting Axios, Licht has also offered to partner with a conservative-leaning outlet on the debates. Again, a conservative-leaning outlet? Why would Newsmax lower itself to be involved with CNN? It isn't going to be Fox News. So where are we now? Gateway Pundit? Lindell TV? Truth Social? That partnership, two sources told Axios, could include giving a journalist from the partner outlet a co-moderator spot. Sweet Jesus on hockey skates. Conservative-leaning outlets don't have journalists. And if you think that is just liberal hyperbole, name one. The National Review, which has half the footprint of the Epoch Times. So it's... Who's the co-moderator? Rich Lowry? Cash Patel? Here are your event moderators, Anderson Cooper and Nick Fuentes. And if he heard those names, how many times would Chris Licht recoil? And how many times would Chris Licht jot them down? Let me... Put licked aside for a moment. For while NBC's self-prostitution is not as pronounced as CNN's, it is in some ways a little more disillusioning. Axios is now reporting that not only has NBC offered to put a Republican debate on NBC, on MSNBC, on CNBC, on Telemundo, and on its streaming news service, but that it made a pitch at an RNC meeting in February, and the pitch starred... Lester Holt, the anchor of NBC Nightly News, letting himself and his not very hard earned credibility as the centerpiece of NBC's attempt to convince the Republicans, Trump, DeSantis, all of the others to bring their festival of lies to NBC. It's shameful. I haven't spoken about Lester Holt here before because I only worked in the same organization with him for eight years. Thus, I know next to nothing about him. And everybody I knew there said that that was all there was to know about him. He's a cypher. He's a guy with good suits and a sunny smile who can read the prompter well and was known at MSNBC 20 years ago as Mr. Iron Pants. That's it. And now he's let himself be trotted out like the prize-winning pig at the Republican County Fair. Semaphore News reporting the RNC was impressed by Lester Holt's pitch. Instead of trying to impress the fascists, NBC, and for that matter, CNN... You guys should be offering whatever non-journalistic bells and whistles are necessary if you really want to put them on your air, but that to get on your networks, any participant must say on the record and publicly and loudly and clearly that Biden won the 2020 election and any claim to the contrary is dishonesty or madness or both or they will not be platformed. Period. You do anything less than that and you're no longer a news organization, NBC, CNN, CNN. Yeah, I know. And this isn't even the most prominent of CNN's problems at the moment. His bosses have finally cut one of Chris Licht's legs. He has many of them out from under him. He's a centipede. Warner Bros. has named a man named David Levy as CNN's new COO. And OO is the operative part of that. Licht has told his people that he decided to do that, that it would be a good idea to give up all the network's business responsibilities to somebody else so he can concentrate on continuing to improve the product. And when I say continuing to improve the product, I mean trying to find anybody who works for him at CNN who can today still take him seriously after Tim Alberta's new 15,000 word Iliad of a piece in the Atlantic about Licht and his methodical destruction of CNN. Out of 90-plus minutes of them, there is one particularly grim line from the classic about journalism gone mad, Sweet Smell of Success, the movie in which Burt Lancaster says to Tony Curtis, You're dead, son. Get yourself buried. As I read Tim Alberta's profile of Licht, in which the only person who was willing to go on the record supporting what Licht is doing was his personal trainer, I thought of three things. I told you so! And, the line I just mentioned from Sweet Smell of Success, and that the Lichtian world that Alberta describes is so hopeless, so screwed up, that it seemed as I read his piece that the last paragraph would have to turn out to be a description of Licht getting fired by his equally dim-witted CNN masters, something like, Finally came the call. Licht was out. Fired. At least he would have more time to spend with his trainer. It is hard to imagine a profile of anybody, anywhere, anybody less egregiously damaging to society than a serial killer that could begin with this one line and then somehow go downhill from there. Quote, how are we going to cover Trump? That's not something I stay up night thinking about, Chris Lick told me. It's very simple. It is, of course, everything but simple. It has paralyzed journalists in every medium, in every American city, with every degree of intelligence and experience and seriousness in solving this problem. And yet Licht goes on. The media has absolutely, I believe, learned its lesson, Licht said. Thank you, Senator Collins Licht. Sensing my surprise, he grinned. I really do, Licht said. I think they know he's playing them, at least the people in my organization. We've had discussions about this. We know that we're getting played, so we're going to resist it. The man, foolish enough to put Trump on live in a town hall after he told a reporter that he was going to resist being played by Trump the man foolish enough to make deals with Trump and give control over who sat in the audience to Trump and to court Trump actually said these things and meant them and never for a moment stopped to think that maybe he was not going to exploit Trump, but he was going to be exploited by Trump. Quote, in the days before the town hall, Alberta writes, concerns about the audience spiked as Licht's description of the crowd, quote, extra Trumpy, wound its way through Slack channels and text message threads. Quote, live television is a volatile thing. People and sets and scripts are always being changed for all kinds of reasons. Wrote Tim Alberta, still CNN employees had reasons to be suspicious. They wondered if some sort of deal had been cut with Trump's team, promising the placement of approved panelists in exchange for his participation in the town hall. At least, even absent some official agreement, it seemed obvious that CNN leaders had been contorting the coverage to keep Trump happy, perhaps to prevent him from walking off stage. At one point, during the pregame show, when the words sexual abuse appeared on the CNN chyron, one of Licht's lieutenants phoned the control room. His instructions stunned everyone who overheard them. The Chiron needed to come down immediately, unquote. If that's true, and I have no reason to doubt that it's true, it sounds like something Licht would do. No, it sounds like something Licht would make somebody else do. And it's indefensible. It's a fireable offense. It should have gotten Licht fired. In fact, it will get him fired. And on that day when he gets kicked upstairs to the coordinator of crapulent synergistic... he will never understand what happened. No journalist, let alone a deluded, self-appointed defender of journalism like Chris Licht, can ever put himself or his network in a position to make it look like it made a deal to provide a political candidate with a live crowd of cheerleaders. Yet extra Trumpy Licht proudly and clearly sold out CNN's objectivity and if the Axios report is correct is prepared to do it again here's your co-host Matt Walsh blog again quoting Alberta's piece in the Atlantic I asked Licht whether there was anything he regretted about the event the extra Trumpy makeup of the crowd no Licht said because it was representative of the Republican base Allowing the audience to cheer at will? No, Licht said, because instructing them to hold their applause, as debate moderators regularly do, would have altered the reality of the event, unquote. (sighs) Twice, Alberta catches Chris Licht on the record, on the fringes, tap dancing along the line of COVID denialism. Licht suggests to a group of students that case and death numbers may have been exaggerated. Quote, we don't know how many deaths were from COVID. He explains he knows this because his father was a doctor. My father was an architect and I can't build a house of playing cards. Licht also actually believes CNN's coverage of the pandemic before he got there was bad. Said it turned into, quote, a place where, oh, wow, we got to keep getting those ratings. We got to keep getting the sense of urgency. He slapped his palms on the table between us, mimicking the feverish pace of an imaginary broadcaster. COVID, COVID, COVID. Look at the case numbers. Look at this, unquote. If I were a CNN employee who had lost somebody to COVID, I would now feel entitled to punch Chris Licht in the mouth. Throughout the piece, as throughout so much of the coverage of Chris Licht's disastrous tenure running CNN, running it into the ground, unprecedented, even among the amazing gallery of rogues and idiots who have run the cable news networks over the decades. And I met all of them. Licht is still portrayed in this piece in The Atlantic as the genius producer at MSNBC when he produced a nighttime last place show. And then a genius morning producer when he produced a morning last place show, then at CBS News where he produced another morning last place show, then at CBS Late Night where he produced another last place show. The portrayal, of course, was forged, and I use that word in all its meanings, by Licht himself. To those of us who were there when he was, he seemed at MSNBC to have a passable sense of graphics and which camera should shoot which backdrop. And otherwise, he did only two things. Act as a henchman for the deplorable Joe Scarborough and spend hours each day trying to undermine MSNBC's other shows so that Scarborough would somehow look better and so that Scarborough's friends among conservatives would not be criticized. He spent so much time stabbing us that there were times Maddow and I thought he lived behind our backs. Now, he really does think he's not just a journalist, but the journalist. Suddenly, Tim Alberta writes, Licht was animated. But I would say that for anyone who does want me to fail, what are you going for? Who would you want in this seat? You want a journalist? You want someone who has a direct line to the corporation and can make a phone call and go, hey, what the F? Do you want someone who's done the job, who's done a lot of jobs, who understands exactly what it takes to do what I'm asking? Someone who believes that our future is based on executing great journalism? Maybe they don't like my style or whatever, but I'm not quite sure what you're going for if you want me to fail, unquote. No, Chris Licht will never understand. He is not the person he described there. Not even close. Not even in the same universe. That he understands none of what it takes most importantly, he will never understand that it doesn't matter if anybody else wants him to fail. He will fail all by himself without anybody else's help. If that wasn't obvious to him after Christian Amanpour deftly and politely vivisected him after the Trump town hall, if it isn't obvious to him now after this Tim Alberta piece, he's even blinder than I thought, and I thought he was damn blind. Alberta recounts in great detail his negotiations to get the man who inflicted Licht on America, David Pay Your Riders Zaslav, to do an on the record interview about Licht and CNN. Alberta says Zaslav, you will remember him, he was the guy who was interrupted during his speech at BU. The guy looks like Biff Tannen. He says Zaslav originally agreed to it, then demanded, quote, approval, then finally, through a press aid, backed out of anything other than an interview, quote, on background only and the boilerplate, we have great confidence in the progress that Chris blah, 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 blah. Pro tip, if your boss won't defend you on the record, your boss is not defending you off the record, you're dead, son, get yourself buried. The thing is, there's still a chance that Licht will read the piece or have it read to him and attack Tim Alberta. Alberta reports that previous criticism by Robert Reich on Substack led to a phone call from Licht that a fairly mild piece by Kurt Bardella in the L.A. Times made Licht vowed, quote, destroy Bardella. We know that late last month, the Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin wrote that Poor should be running CNN and not Licht and was attacked on Twitter by CNN's PR guy in a screeching screed worthy of a teenager rejected by his crush. When I first criticized Licht, somebody leaked to one of the websites that I was only doing so because Licht had turned me down for a job. I have not spoken to Chris Licht nor tried to since 2017. But I will say it did please me that a couple of months ago, a New York Times called me for a comment. And the guy from the paper's first question was, at MSNBC, did Chris Licht really eat paste? If there were not enough enraging parts to this story, I mean, enraging enough that I wonder if I've been too easy on Chris Licht. This sent me into apoplexy. Quote, We are not an advocacy network. We are providing something different. And when the spit hits the fan in this world, you're not going to have time for that advocacy anymore. First of all, Chris, the spit has hit the fan. A political party, one of the two larger ones, is trying to end American democracy. Chris Licht does not seem to have noticed that. Chris Licht also does not seem to have noticed that journalism must advocate. It must advocate for democracy. And advocating is not partisanship. And this fundamental misunderstanding of his own job is spreading throughout television and media. We can't run that. It might offend those people trying to destroy the country. Fascists buy sneakers too. The spit has long since hit the fan and Chris Licht is worried about the feelings of those who threw the spit. and the spit itself. To me, most of what Tim Alberta wrote had the effect I used to hear from countdown viewers in the years 2006 and 2007. Oh, thank God, somebody else is seeing this. I thought I was alone out here. But he managed to reveal something I never knew about and never would have been able to guess, not fully anyway, but for years I have assumed there was something else in the Chris Licht story, some other malign, moronic influence that would help explain all the damage he did on NBC and CBS and the fatal damage he is still doing today at CNN. And there in this article, it is. Alberta is in the apartment of a USC professor who has convinced Lick to talk to 16 of his students. And what follows is both maudlin and terrifying. To quote the piece again, "'Chris was absolutely positively without question the right choice for CNN.' the teacher told his students, motioning them toward the man seated in front of them. There is nothing more important in America today than trust. I'm praying that Chris is successful. I want him to have this job for 10 years because anything less than 10 years will not give him the opportunity to make the most important changes to the most important news source on the face of the earth. I have every faith that he will succeed and every fear for this country if he doesn't. He turned to face licked. The teacher's eyes were watery. His voice was choked with emotions. My hopes and dreams are embodied in you, he said. This was quite an introduction, especially considering the man who gave it. Frank Luntz, unquote. Frank Luntz? Frank Luntz, Frank Luntz? Why, that's Frank Luntz's name. Is there somebody else out there named Frank Luntz besides that Frank Luntz? The rabid, biased, subjective Republican pollster who can make a focus group defend any conservative idea and then make that group get up and sing Who Let the Dogs Out? The mercenary who has worked for every news organization, the man who every 18 to 24 months goes through a phase or an act in which he pretends to not be a conservative but just a middle-of-the-road surveyor of the American landscape. That's Chris Licht's mentor? His spirit animal is Frank Luntz, the great flaming fraud that is Frank Luntz, the whore that is Chris Licht. Well, that's the missing piece in the Chris Licht story, adored by, beholden to, influenced by one of the great confidence tricksters of American media and politics and specifically polling. Let me tell you how I know that. I know that because Frank Luntz once did his whore act on my behalf, or at least for my benefit. In 2003, I had gone back to NBC Sports, and as a peace gesture towards my still-angry ex-employers at MSNBC, I went over to New Jersey and I filled in for one of their ailing show hosts. And while I was there, with absolutely no belief, no intention that I was going to stay there more than a week, They told me about a new show they were going to launch at 8 o'clock every night called Countdown and how they were deep in fruitful negotiations to buy from ABC News the contract of their dream host for Countdown, their ideal for the new show, Sam Donaldson. I blanched, apparently. I was working at ABC News at the time in radio, and I knew that ABC was so desperate to get Sam Donaldson to quit his contract that they had taken him completely off TV and stuck him only on radio, and when that hadn't gotten him to quit, they had just relegated his radio show to internet only. In 2003, internet only. I knew this because I had filled in on the Sam Donaldson show. Before it was over, I knew we had about four listeners. Now... It was the executive who told me this who blanched. What do I do? The job offer is on Donaldson's desk, and it's on my boss's desk. He looked around the room. Would you do it? Would, would, would you do another nightly show for us, another 8 o'clock show, buddy? I shrugged. Sure, and I'll need time off for the Olympics and the other sports stuff that I signed with Dick Ebersole to do, but... Oh, God, thanks. Wait, wait, I know how to do this. Rainy? Get me Frank Luntz. I heard his end of the conversation. I mean, it's possible he wasn't talking to Frank Luntz, but why would they go through this whole charade if they weren't talking to each other? He told Luntz, or whoever that was on the other end of the phone, of his crisis. He invoked the name of the then president of NBC News, Neil Shapiro. You know, Neil loves focus groups. Uh, Frank, can you get me a focus group that says it hates Sam Donaldson? And another focus group that says it loves Keith Olbermann? Can you do it by day after tomorrow? Great. Thanks, buddy. Neil Shapiro's office called my agent to offer me the 8 p.m. show three days later. The focus groups convinced the president of NBC News. So that's who Chris Licht is listening to, and that's who thinks Chris Licht is the Messiah. Frank Luntz. Back to Tim Alberta. Quote, every employee I spoke with was asking some variation of the same question. Did Licht have any idea what he was doing? Unquote. Duh. No, I told you that already. Alberta also provided the requisite punchline. Quote, then Licht said something I'd never heard before. I don't want people to think of CNN, Fox, and MSNBC in the same sentence, he said. Well, at least he got that done. CNN is now often in fourth place in the ratings behind the semi-professional Newsmax. Or on good nights, it is such a distant third behind Fox and MSNBC that no, Chris. Nobody does think of CNN, Fox, and MSNBC in the same sentence anymore. Bravo, Chris Licht. Also of note today, Chuck Todd got fired as the host of Meet the Press. That's next. This is Count. <laughs> <laughs>
0: if you dare.
3: <laughs> oh Wait, I was recording? Ahem. Post scripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline 30 Rock. Quote, when I took over Meet the Press said Chuck Todd on Meet the Press as he announced his own firing from Meet the Press. It was a Sunday show that had a lot of people questioning whether it still could have a place in the modern media space. Well, I think we've answered that question and then some. To the end, Chuck Todd remains a master of self-unawareness. First of all, even if you think your meaning of that line is correct, how do you phrase it that way? To let yourself get run over by your critics. It was a Sunday show that had a lot of people questioning whether it could still have a place in the modern media space. Well, I think we've answered that question. Second of all, it isn't true. Meet the Press never reached more prestigious heights than on Sunday, June 8th, 2008. The topic of the show, which was on early because of the French Open coverage on NBC, was Hillary Clinton finally conceding the 2008 Democratic primary. The guests were all NBC political correspondents, Ron Allen, Lee Cowan, David Gregory, Andrew Mitchell, Kelly O'Donnell, and Chuck Todd. The host, as the host had been since December 8th, 1991, was Tim Russert. The show mattered. Russert had gotten Colin Powell to admit WMD in Iraq was a lie. He was the consensus gold standard in political media and capable of keeping the Democrats off the backs of NBC's more conservative commentators and the Republicans off the backs of NBC's more liberal ones, me in particular. And five days later, Tim Russert died. Tom Brokaw took the job over until December when David Gregory got the position because of the goodwill left over from Russert. He was given six years to try to make it work, and he did not make it work. Chuck Todd took over on September 7, 2014. Yesterday, he said, I'd rather leave a little bit too soon than stay a tad bit too long. And if he actually meant that, he would have left on September 8, 2014. Chuck did two things and two things alone in that show, and he will stay on until September when Kristen Welker takes over and she will neither fail nor succeed in the job, which is exactly what NBC News wants at a moment when someone is needed at some national broadcast network to ask some actual questions once in a while. Chuck did two things and two things only. First, there is no issue he could not apply raging both sidesism to. He once asked on air if America could handle the prosecution of an ex-president. He asked that of a Republican governor. He and his staff once did a feature on how American media should cover Trump if he ran again. They asked Republican staffers. Chuck would platform anybody. And when Kellyanne Conjob fricasseed him in that famous Alternative Facts episode, Chuck and NBC News really thought they had done some sort of service to the country. Chuck and thus his program had no understanding that they were covering anything more meaningful than a sports league. And he made up quotes and meanings and attributed them to people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that's when what was left of my professional friendship with him snapped. And I'll tell you that story at the end of the podcast. The other thing Chuck did, number two of two, was something Russert always refused to do. He overbooked Meet the Press. And thus, his natural inclination to not prod or push or demand proof for what the guy just said was exacerbated by the fact that each interview was boxed in time-wise. He couldn't dig deeper. He had to get to the next commercial. Or as Trevor Noah said at the 2022 White House Correspondents' Dinner in a shiv disguised as a joke, Chuck Todd is here. Chuck, you here? How you doing? I'd ask a follow-up, but I know you don't know what those are. They say Chuck is staying on as a political analyst and will also do long form journalism for NBC. And that is the polite way of saying you've been here 16 years since Russert asked everybody he trusted, like Brokaw Kelly O'Donnell and even me, if he should hire him. And we all said yes. So, Chuck, we'll let you play out your contract. And if you get another offer, go on, have a good time. We'll throw you in real nice going away party. there will even be a cake. As I said, I will come back to this in things I promise not to tell later. But for now, this championship joke on Twitter from Frank Galton. And I don't know who Frank Galton is, but I would like to shake his hand. He wrote, quote, Charles Todd wants you to forget about Chuck. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Dateline Washington, once again, democracy is preserved less by the dedication of those of us trying to save it, more by the idiocy of those trying to destroy it. Lauren Boebert, super genius, did not vote on the debt ceiling bill in the House. She then proclaimed she had refused to vote as a protest against more D.C. self-created garbage. Self-created garbage, Bobo? Did Chuck Todd write that line for you? The saving grace of these morons is that they don't notice when they sign the receipts that are later produced. Self created garbage, Bobert's self righteous claim of protest evidently riled, or at least got the attention of a CNN Capitol Hill producer named Morgan Rimmer, who tweeted nothing less than a video of herself explaining to Bobert that the vote was over. They closed it, she says, and that Bobert had missed the vote. And this producer said that as Bobert was running up the steps of the Capitol, clearly intending to vote, since, as Ms. Rimmer notes in the audio version of the tape, you will now hear, after she told Bobert that the vote had been closed, Bobert kept on running up the goddamn steps. They just
2: closed it. They closed it? They closed it. Yeah. Hey.
3: hey. Yeah. yeah. Two things. I'd like to nominate Morgan Rimmer as the next CEO of CNN. And that scene, and I'll retweet the video, is exactly the way the famous Monty Python's Flying Circus episode ends with Nobody Expects the Spanish Inquisition. As the program credits come to a close, the members of the Spanish Inquisition are desperately racing to get to a courtroom to deliver their line— they get off a bus, they run up the steps, they burst into the room, and just as Michael Palin is about to say, nobody expects, the scene goes dark and the words, the end, appear. And he says, oh, bugger. I didn't hear Bobert say, oh, bugger. Self-created garbage. And Dateline, New York. I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for abiding my day off. It was not walking pneumonia or rocking pneumonia or any of the other harrowing things my doctor contemplated, like a blood clot in my lungs. It looks like it was exhaustion, insufficient exercise, and decreasing youth.
0: This... Is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not
3: anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, we've spoken previously of the Oakland, nay Kansas City, nay Philadelphia, soon to be Las Vegas A's, and how owner John Fisher starved that franchise to death in the Bay Area, even though the team is tied for the second most World Series championships in baseball for the last half century. From Reddit, one Oakland A's fan's revenge spotted at an A's game wearing his replica A's jersey. The number on the back is zero and the name above it is traded. A different baseball note from a franchise gradually rebuilding its reputation. The New York Mets inducted four members into their Hall of Fame Saturday, including my friends, the announcers Gary Cohen and Howie Rose and pitcher Al Leiter, who I have known a combined 89 years for crying out loud. They also inducted the great Mets 80s star Howard Johnson, and congratulations again to each of them. Now, one note, you don't often hear crowds gasp at these events. A lot of cheering, a lot of applause, a lot of names, not so much gasping. But there it was on Saturday, because before the ceremony began, the Mets had positioned four giant triangular baseball cards on the field showing each of the four new inductees. They just looked like kind of creative, clever props. And when the first of the new inductees, Howard Johnson, was introduced, the side of his giant baseball card opened, and Howard emerged from inside the baseball card, and there were gasps in the stadium. Though, to be fair, not as many gasps as if one of the guys had gotten stuck. Uh, yeah, 911, uh, um... You know, this is the Mets calling. We have a Hall of Famer trapped in a giant baseball card and... Hello? 911, you there? Hello? like that one particularly. Coming up, back to Chuck Todd, and yes, we were actually close enough friends that we were in the same fantasy football league for a decade and then I just couldn't take him anymore. First, the Daily Roundup, the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze to France's white supremacist political party, now called the National Rally, formerly the National Front. Its critics would say formerly the hmm-hmm with a Z in it. France's parliament established a committee of inquiry to look into links between Marine Le Pen's party and Russia. She was hoping to prove there weren't any. Sources, though, tell the Agence France press that not only did the National Front constantly repeat and promote Russian government propaganda in the last decade in France, per this report by the French Parliament, sometimes word for word, but that Le Pen's party also got a huge loan a few years ago from an obscure Russian bank, and then the bank mysteriously went out of business. The runner-up Elon Musk, in a legal filing and a lawsuit being heard in San Francisco, his attorneys, Twitter's attorneys, state under penalty of perjury that at no point was the government paying it nor pressuring it to censor anybody and that the new CEO will not enact any changes in Twitter's content moderation policy. Wait, wouldn't that mean that the whole Twitter files stuff was crap? I, I mean more crap. But our winner, an alleged comedian named Chrissy Mayer, appearing on Newsmax to defend Chick-fil-A from the latest right-wing, boy, every right-winger is softest church music, Umbridge Festival. I hate to make a fried chicken joke, she said, but they sell fried chicken to Chick-fil-A and I don't know how much more inclusive we could get here. Unquote. Happily for Ms. Mayer, that isn't a joke. That's just a racist trope that goes back at least a century and a half in this country, so if you use it in your act on TV, that makes you a racist. Chrissy, hey, Chris Licht, I got your Republican debate co-moderator right here, Mayor, today's worst person in the world! This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Still ahead on Countdown, and now he belongs to the ages. Chuck Todd, fired as the host of Meet the Press. I'd like to thank the good Lord for letting me live to see this day. I'll return to my favorite topic, me, and the day my fragile willingness to tolerate Chuck Todd snapped in half. In things I promise not to tell. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help every dog has its day. Poor Lola in Miami, a seven-year-old chihuahua, terrible hernia. And like so many dogs, especially small dogs, these awful, life-threatening things can be cleared up in hours with treatment and surgery. So naturally, Lola's alleged human abandoned her. Paw Patrol Rescue rescued her, got her to surgery. She'll soon be recovering at a foster home. She's fine. And they're trying to get donations to cover the money they put out up front to save her. So if you can help, Lola on Cuddly.com or on my Twitter feeds, they're trying to raise like $300. I thank you, and Lola thanks you. Chuck for about 15 years. Early in his career, when he was with the D.C. Insider publication, The Hotline, he was a frequent guest on Countdown. And in 2007, when Tim Russert was thinking of hiring him at NBC News, mine was one of dozens of temperatures Tim took. As Chuck later wrote to me, "Quote: You certainly were a tremendous advocate and cheerleader for me over the years, and I don't forget that. Yeah, well, that wasn't true. He forgot it all right, but I'm veering away from the main story. In 2008, a couple of Washington political types started a fantasy football league. If you don't think fantasy football leagues are important, you should know that last spring, a major league baseball player in uniform, walked up to another Major League Baseball player in uniform on a Major League Baseball field with thousands of people already in the stands, and he slapped him in the face over a roster move that the second player had made in their fantasy football league, The second guy had managed to retain the rights to an injured player, and the first guy was upset about this, so six months after their fantasy season ended, this Major League Baseball player walked up and slapped the other Major League Baseball player. If slaps or duels or kidnappings are not everyday occurrences in fantasy football. They do represent the kind of baseline intensity of the thing. So when I and others were approached about this Washington-centric league in 2008, it was already a big deal, even before we were all sworn to secrecy because a spot in the league was being held open for some DC guy named Barack Obama. It turned out he did not join our league, some excuse about too much work, when obviously he was just afraid of my fantasy football skills. But some people in his White House did join the league, and I still will not identify them because the premise of this league was the first rule of Fantasy Football Club is you do not talk about Fantasy Football Club. I will say that Chuck Todd, like me, was an original player. We call ourselves owners because we are nuts, and it's a fantasy. It's in the title Fantasy Football, Fantasy Football Owners, and one year... I think it was 2010, I had assembled in this league, mostly by accident, a team that was almost perfect. It literally lost one game all season. And that was in the middle of the year to Chuck Todd's team. And the night after I lost to Chuck Todd's team, he was giving a speech, I think at the University of Virginia, and witnesses called to tell me, that he began his speech by saying, I have much to tell you, but first I have to tell you that I am in a fantasy football league with Keith Ulberman and he has a great team this year. And this week I upset him by a final score of 143 to 141 or whatever the score was. I thought it was pretty dumb. But by 2010, Chuck was the NBC News White House correspondent, and we all cringed whenever we saw he was going to be on with one of us on MSNBC. See, some people respond well to pressure and success, and some people do not, and some people become entirely different people. So when Chuck violated the prime directive of this fantasy football league and talked about it, I shrugged. The other guys in the league did not. Chuck was actually punished. The commissioner of the league ordered that he had to skip his fourth choice in the following year's player draft. Chuck was bereft. He believed this would destroy his chances. He apologized to me like every week. And finally, I said, you know, guys, maybe this is too much. And as the supposed victim in the equation, I got final say. And Chuck got to keep his fourth draft choice. By 2016, Chuck was, because Tim Russert died, Tom Brokaw retired, and David Gregory flamed out. Chuck was the host of Meet the Press. He was also political director of NBC News, another part of Russert's old portfolio. But whereas Tim was a master who could convince the Republicans he was ordering that I be punished for what I said, when in fact he would be calling me and asking me what stupid, meaningless thing I could think of to tell the Republicans he was punishing me with or for... He was sublime subtlety. Not Chuck. No subtlety there. In 2016, Chuck was preparing to not name my ex-lib-in girlfriend Katie Turr as the new NBC White House correspondent, even though she had suffered as the primary NBC correspondent covering the Trump campaign. And out of nowhere, Chuck emails me that he's going to be in New York and he wants to take me to dinner. I had known him more than a decade by then. We had never as much as shared pieces of the same pizza. I had not seen him in the flesh in more than five years. And I knew as we sat down that Chuck's idea was to get me to tell Katie that she was not going to be White House correspondent, so he did not have to. He kept bringing it up. What do you think Katie would think? And then I'd switch the topic to uh, fantasy football. And then he'd say, but let me ask you about Katie and the White House job. We did this for 90 minutes. And finally, I said, "Okay, Chuck, I've avoided it long enough. Maybe I could call her and soften the blow for her. And that's when he said, well, I'm going back to D.C. tonight. So if I want to catch that last train, I better leave. Bye. Chuck is not subtle. I'll spare you the other crap from the Fantasy League. Suffice to say, I was reminded of how annoyingly and obviously he used to conduct himself when I read that last May, one of Chuck's guest bookers for the now no longer on TV Meet the Press Daily show had emailed the office of Alaska Congressman Don Young, hoping to get Young to appear the next day, which would have been the ultimate great guest get because Don Young had died two months earlier. Anyway, this fantasy football league was fun and unique in that there had only been one change in its composition in all that time. Chuck's team defeated mine in the fantasy football Super Bowl one year. And mostly he was just annoying like he was on the air. Nothing worse than that. And then on June 19th, 2019, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez... AOC, ripped the Trump administration's migrant policies. She said, quote, the United States is running concentration camps on our southern border, and that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps, end quote. Chuck went on MSNBC and said the following in response, quote, you can call our government's detention of migrants many things depending on how you see it. It's a stain on our nation, maybe. A necessary evil to others to deal with an untenable situation, perhaps. But do you know what you can't call it? Chuck then played the clip of AOC calling it concentration camps, and Chuck resumed, if you want to criticize the shameful treatment of people at our southern border, fine, you'll have plenty of company, but be careful comparing them to Nazi concentration camps because they're not at all comparable in the slightest. A lot of people, me included, were stunned. Ocasio-Cortez never mentioned the Nazis, And concentration camps did not begin with the Nazis or Hitler. They began with the British in the Boer War in South Africa at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Yet here was Chuck putting a word in her mouth, and that word was Nazi, and then he attacked her for something she never said. He lied about her. He lied. Chuck Todd made it up on the news. I was furious enough to email him that night. I thought by now somebody at NBC would have pointed out that concentration camps and Nazi death camps are not the same thing. But no, NBC had simply tweeted out the clip of Chuck lying about the Congresswoman and putting the word Nazi in her mouth as if it were something NBC News should be proud of. Chuck was furious at me. He emailed back, quote, come on, own up that she invoked the wrong image and should have simply walked the imagery back. And I wrote him back that the person who had to walk back imagery here was him. Since he had said Nazi, And she had not said Nazi. On my angriest day, he now replied, I'd like to think I treated you with more respect than this. Sad. I feel like we won't recover from this, and we had recovered from a lot. I wrote back to Chuck that we weren't going to recover from anything if he insisted that all concentration camps were Nazi death camps, and that somebody who never said Nazis owed somebody else an apology for... What? Not saying Nazis? There was no getting past the reality that Chuck had no idea that he was 100% in the wrong here. Historically, wrong. Factually, wrong. Ethically, wrong. Not a leg to stand on. So I, of course, began to contemplate the year ahead in fantasy football. I couldn't face it. I'm sorry. I let real life and fantasy sports mix, and I just, I just couldn't spend another autumn having to deal with Chuck Todd. Chuck had often said that he was now just too busy to play in the league anymore and he would have to leave it this year. So on August 11th, 2019, more in sadness than in anger, I asked the commissioner of the league if Chuck was coming back for the 2019 season. I don't know. Maybe not was the answer. I said, look, this is not him or me. I'm not asking you to not let him come back. It's not like that. But if he tells you one way or the other, let me know, because I just can't stand another year of him. He takes all the fun of it out of it for me. I understand, said the commissioner. It's a shame, but why do it if it's not fun? At 8 a.m. on the morning of August 14th, 2019, the official email notifying everybody of the new fantasy football season went out. I was not listed among the players. 19 minutes later, I got an email from Chuck Todd, subject line, it's just a game, content, quote, just play. I won't speak to you, and please do me the same courtesy. Grow the F up. And no, I am not editing this. He really wrote, grow the F up. I wrote back that I thought he'd become part of the problem that imperils our nation, and I didn't want to have anything more to do with him. I ended it with, quote, do not contact me again. At 10.13 a.m., he contacted me again. Amazing how you believe what you believe about me. I'm sorry for ever helping you get credibility. I did not reply. At 10.18, he wrote me again, again. I'm happy to never speak with you again. I'd prefer to pretend you don't exist. Don't make me care about you. Now, boy, when Chuck Todd asks you to not make him care about you, you are in deep and dangerous waters, boy. Another Chuck email at 1029. You are truly a tiny little man. I don't even feel sorry for you anymore. You have done this to yourself. And here I made a mistake. I did not ask him what he felt sorry for me about and what I had done to myself. I assume it was about losing the 2018 fantasy football Super Bowl to him. At 11.09, another email, quote, you deliberately misinterpreted what I said, shot first, and then rationalized the mistaken shot with some convoluted, full of bleep explanation. This presumably was the silly little detail about him lying and saying Representative Ocasio-Cortez had referred to Nazi concentration camps. Then he wrote that what she said, quote, evokes gas chambers, and I think that's where we should leave it. A fantasy sports league is just a fantasy sports league and having been in various kinds of them since 19-good-god-85, I often wonder if they aren't a kind of therapeutic, cathartic pressure valve for our inner demons. I do know this. You find out a lot about the other people in a fantasy sports league. So when that baseball player slapped the other baseball player over the reserve running back that he kept on his roster, and most people said, I just don't understand why he slapped him. I said, oh, I understand why he slapped him. I've done all the damage I can do here. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the world headquarters of the Alderman Broadcasting Empire in New York. I hope it was of sufficient length to make up for there not being one last Friday. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. And it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc., Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 881st day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. Happy birthday, sis. The next scheduled Countdown is tomorrow. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.